This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Today is Thursday, July 16th, and yes, it is still 2020. I'm John Dunn. Some housekeeping, go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. We've got links to subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you're an Apple podcast subscriber, please think about leaving us a review. We're very excited about how many people we're reaching and we'd love to be in the ears of everyone in this crazy animal welfare world. The more the merrier. And your reviews and your sharing this on social media all help us grow the podcast. If you caught episode 19, then you got a rundown of all the latest numbers in the new data set. This massive data collection effort shines a light not only on the number of animals killed nationally, but also geographic information. It's the data that drives the Best Friends Pet Lifesaving Dashboard. Anyone can go look and see how their community is performing. So again, if you missed that episode 19, go check it out. It's not a prerequisite for today's, so onward. Over the years, there have been attempts to create standards for data reporting, and what we have now is light years ahead of where we were, say, 10 years ago. But there's still disagreement around how we do this. Today's episode on the surface, you might think of some real inside baseball, the finer points of data collection and reporting, and on some level it is. But I don't think it's minutiae and it's quickly becoming something that deserves a larger discussion as we move towards No-Kill 2025. This discussion around owner-requested euthanasia, or OREs, can be pretty fierce. Before we get into the controversial part of the ORE discussion, I wanna share this with you. Rich Avanzino is widely regarded as the father of the No-Kill movement. From his time at the San Francisco SPCA starting in the mid-70s to later becoming the president of Maddie's Fund, the impact Rich has had on our work is immeasurable. I've had the honor of spending time with him and hearing the stories of his work in the early days, just doing some incredibly progressive work as over 30 years ago. At the 2015 Best Friends National Conference, Rich told the story of Sido. This is a dog that not only changed his life, but changed the movement. If an owner wanted their pet to be put to sleep by the shelter, but the dog or cat didn't need to be euthanized for medical or behavior issues and had plenty of life left, then Rich thought, why would we euthanize that animal? We started on a path to reverse all this stuff, change the, the dialogue, focus on what's really important, talk about animal lovers and what we can really accomplish together. I was particularly inspired in a very dramatic moment when a little dog named Sido came into my life. Now, for you who can look at the slide, the dog is on the left, <laughs> and, and I'm the guy on the right. I had hair then, and I was in my 30s. Sido, uh, owner, had committed suicide and left a will saying that her dog should be killed. Mary Murphy, uh, the owner of Sido, uh, was taken away by the medical examiner, and Sido was entrusted to us until uh, we could uh, find out what was going to be uh, her eventual placement. When we were told by the executrix that Sido was supposed to die, we said, nah, no, no, no. We, we are going to save Sido just like we want to save them all, and every animal is going to be a ch given a chance. And she said, no, you're not, because I have the will, I have the law, you better comply or you're going to regret it. And we said, no, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. 
And she said, you know what we're going to do? I said, well, go ahead and sue me. Actually, I didn't say sue me. I said, sue the San Francisco SPCA. <laughs> but she sued me and the San Francisco SPCA. And she said, you know, we're, we're going to take your home. We're going to leave you penniless. We're going to accuse you of stealing. And so we're going to put you in jail. I said, that sounds sort of harsh. Why don't we go to the court and ask them to reconfigure the will so that Saito can find a loving home? She said, I'm going to file the papers tomorrow. So I said to Saito, after uh, Rebecca Wells Smith left, you're going to have to come home with me because this legal battle is probably going to take months. You don't belong here. You, you need to be in a, somebody's home. You're going to be one of my fosters. So that night, I came home. And I said, honey, I'm home. <laughs> and by the way, I have another foster dog here. The good news was my family immediately fell in love. It was love at first sight. And she joined the family. Now that night when I went to bed, Saito jumped in bed with me. She snuggled up next to me, because that was the way we were going to live together. And when my wife got in bed, she growled. You, you can understand that this is a turning point, can't you? Okay. So while we were filing the papers, I called up a reporter and I said, you've got to come down here and meet this little dog who's supposed to die that we're not going to let go on to the next world. And the reporter from the biggest newspaper in town showed up in my office. He sat in the chair and he said, interesting story, but why this dog? In the country, you are killing tens of millions of dogs and cats every year. In this city, you are killing tens of thousands of dogs and cats every year. Why this dog? On cue, Saito gets up from her nap, goes over, licks the hand of the reporter, puts her paw on the knee, snuggles up close, and the reporter says, I get it. He told the story, and the story was told and retold and told every week, many times, several times a week, for six months. Just towards the end of the legal battle, some politicians heard that Saito was getting a lot of attention, and so they decided, let's get involved. <laughs> so they introduced legislation to save her life. Now, in a former life, I had been a lobbyist in Sacramento, and it took me years to get legislation through. Well, Saito's legislation went through in three weeks, both houses of our assembly and our Senate. Now, you have to understand, she was the charmer. She went to the hearings. She sat next to me. I tried to testify. She they put her paws over her eyes like, oh my god, what is he saying? Uh, but we passed the law. Over the objections, by the way, of the humane community, all the animal activist lobbyists in Sacramento opposed her legislation. But we, even though we got it through both houses in three weeks, the governor wouldn't sign the bill. So we go to trial, and at the, in, in the court, all the cameras are there. CNN, ABC, CBS, the networks, the, the wire services, the radio reporters, uh, the uh, newspapers. And the judge comes in and says, I'm ready to rule on the Saito case. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, and the clerk says, Judge, uh, the governor is on the phone. Picks up the phone. The governor says, 
I'm going to sign the bill. And he says, you're too late, Governor. Bang. And so he proceeded to rule that Saito had a right to life. It was the first animal rights case decided in America. And it basically said that dogs and cats are not property. They are living, sentient beings. The court also allowed uh, Saito to be placed with me. And we had a wonderful life together for five glorious years. She was an old dog. She was 11 years old. On her 16th birthday, she had a stroke, and shortly after that, passed on. But she demonstrated what companion animals are all about. Her story on the nightly news and in the newspapers ended up in the American Bar Association Journal, was on Encyclopedia Britannica, and was relied on by many, many cases throughout the United States and even throughout the world today. So she was very, very special to me. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, how is this controversial? If we're supporting pets and people, then we'll save animals that can be saved. And if an animal is suffering, then we will relieve that suffering through humane euthanasia. Now, at the top of the episode, I mentioned the data, and it's that part, how OREs are tracked. That's where things get a little crazy. If they are included as part of a shelter's save rate, then it can make the overall save rate lower. And for shelters that do offer it as a public service, including those cases of true euthanasia and the numbers can feel, I don't know, for lack of a better term, punitive. But if they are excluded from the data, it can offer a sort of loophole. A shelter might take in an animal whose owner requests euthanasia, but the animal is savable. They then go on to kill that healthier, treatable pet and put the death in the ORE column. With OREs excluded, the save rate remains higher. And for some organizations, the number of animals in the ORE column, when you start to look at the data, it's definitely high enough where, you know, as they say, if there's smoke, there's fire. These are end-of-life decisions and emotions run high, especially if someone hints that maybe an organization is exploiting that loophole. It's important to note that Best Friends last year made the decision to include OREs as part of the save rate calculations. If organizations were in high school, Best Friends was not named most popular in the senior superlatives. But the numbers are what they are. Tens of thousands of animals that are falling into this gray area. And we have to ask, should they have been euthanized? So yeah, popular kid or not, we've got to figure this one out. To try to make sense of it, and for some real talk, I sat down with one of the realists there is, Denise Deisler, the CEO of the Jacksonville Humane Society. Denise, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, I just wanted to let you know that uh, you guys, Florida, you've been in the news a little bit uh, for all the wrong reasons, obviously, and I cannot even imagine what it's like to be there right now. Uh, I just hope that you and your staff, everybody's staying safe and, and healthy. Florida's crazy, John. Insane. Insane. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you anywhere from three to six panicked staff members every single day. I was exposed to somebody who was exposed to somebody who was exposed. I mean, it's just, that's a life now. You know, we are, but working on shoring up their confidence and keeping them safe and keeping things cranking in, in the midst of crazy. And as you know, it's, it promises to get nothing but crazier soon. So, okay, let's start by maybe, can you define ORE? 
Uh, well, I think, quite frankly, that's part of the problem, John, is it's not universally defined. And I think uh, something like ORE has, you know, moral and ethical implications. It has financial implications. It has mission implications. And, you know, think about it in terms of your own pet. You know, let's drop it down to a very personal level. It's not black and white and cut and dry for us when we're making a decision about our own dog or cat. And so to expect that this wide variety of organizations across the country would all agree on it is probably an unreasonable expectation. So I'll say that. So we don't always have to agree on everything uh, because it is controversial. End of life is controversial. It's controversial with people. You know, I'm one of those that I would advocate in a heartbeat that you let me make that decision for myself. But in the case of animals, of course, that's not a decision they can make for themselves. So I think ORE, there may be communities for whom it is morally, ethically, and practically a necessity. I think there are other communities for whom it is not, um, and that they're not seeking other more appropriate answers to that. So uh, there is the mission part of it. You know, who said it's our mission to take the life of animals? Even if it's a humane thing to do and it's an appropriate thing to do, nonetheless, who said that falls in our purview? Who made that decision at what point in time? Goodness only knows. And why aren't we seeking if there's truly a need for that? And I don't argue that there, there isn't one or that there is, but that if there, we're assuming there's a need to provide affordable or free humane end of life when it's valid and justified, then why aren't we seeking other solutions to that? Where would you go for that? Would you go to the shelter? Of course not. You'd go to a veterinary practice and you'd consult with your veterinarian. So to me, the long-term, much better answer to the whole debate about it is finding the more appropriate solution to it. And that is, are we partnering with private practice veterinarians? Are we funding it at a private practice or at a hospital or a clinic? That's true humane euthanasia. So to Denise, the true humane euthanasia isn't I take this beloved cat or dog from the arms of some, from somebody who cared them and then go throw them in a cage somewhere and send them off with tears in their eyes. And oh, when some tech gets around to it, we euthanize them. And in the meantime, they're terrified. I don't know what's humane about that. And you know, I get that that's an opinion and uh, one that certainly people could make arguments with. But if there's the alternative, and instead that same person who comes to me looking for help I can say, nope, we don't offer that service here because it's really, we're not qualified to. That's not who we are. But I've got a relationship with these five veterinarians and I'll cover your exam with them and a consult as to whether or not euthanasia is the right answer for your pet. So you do not provide that service to the public? No, we will at the public hospital. We operate a public hospital separate from the shelter. And so if somebody comes to our doorstep with that, we give them a free consult with a veterinarian, with the owner present, and together they make the decision for all the right reasons, not about money, not about anything else, but what is the quality of life for this pet? What is that person's ability to carry them through end of life and or is this an appropriate uh, euthanasia decision? So someone comes into your clinic and says, I have a 12-year-old dog and here's the reason why I want to have my dog put to sleep. You've got some sort of process there, a consultation, uh, but that's a public clinic yep. separate from the shelter. So that's not an intake. Correct. If the outcome of that consult is that the dog should not be euthanized, then it becomes an owner surrender for you and then an animal added to that column. If the person didn't find another solution with the veterinarian, sometimes by talking it through with the veterinarian, 
And the vet saying, I'm really not seeing distress in your pet. And this is a chronic condition. And here's the way we can treat this. And he could probably live happily and comfortably for, you know, another six months, a year, two years. With help, are you willing to take him home and give those meds? So it doesn't always result in a surrender. Sometimes it's a huge relief to that pet owner to know that what they thought was, you know, the end of the road isn't the end of the road. And there's another solution and they'll avail themselves of that. But uh, for your example, if that's not the case, and this is not a euthanasia candidate in the vet's opinion, and the owner is not willing to provide ongoing care, at that point, we would intake it to the shelter, but not for the purpose of euthanasia. We would intake it for finding a good, healthy outcome for them. You said that euthanasia shouldn't, doesn't have to be part of a mission, but we do know there are shelters in areas of the country where they may be the only provider of the service. I always think of rural areas in this way, you know, you got smaller communities, a big geographic area, maybe not a lot of private vets, but there are organizations that are providing the service to your point, may not need to, maybe shouldn't be, but they are. And some of these animals are not cases of true euthanasia and they may be using the ORE column as a way to, paint a different picture of the numbers. So do you have a breakdown of owners that come, say, to your public clinic seeking euthanasia? How many are euthanized? How many do you end up bringing into the facility? And maybe how many others are sent off with assistance? Oh, gosh, it's a good question. And no, I wish I could tell you, but no, Um, it would be anecdotal. It wouldn't, I, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't. I can tell you that it is not unusual for us to intake an animal whom the owner was kind of at the end of the road with, but we believed still had quality of life and our veterinarian was not comfortable making a euthanasia decision. And again, I allow for that. that. Again, where that end of the road is, is different for everybody. And what some people can handle and tolerate in their life is different for everybody. So for me, it's not about condemning or judging that person who decided, okay, maybe it's not EU, but I can't continue to care for him either. That's what we're here for. That to me is our mission. That's our purpose. So for we tried everything we could to help keep that family together, but for whatever variety of reasons they could not, then that's our mission is to bring that animal in and get the best outcome for them and quality of life, however long that quality of life might be. To, to address those rural shelters you're talking about, I get that we're all different and the challenges in communities are different and the resources in communities are different. I totally understand that. And so in the case of a very rural community for whom there may not be any other options or other choices, that may be a decision they feel they have no choice but to provide that service. And they may be faithfully carrying that out, not jockeying numbers or anything else, but truly providing a service that nobody else is offering. And so I allow for that. Where I draw an absolute line that to me cannot be moved is they still count, period. They count. And if you're that rural community and you can say, ah, we don't have any veterinary practices. And yes, we have a vet assessment done to ensure it is the right you know, answer for it. Or if you don't have access to a vet, we've got a knowledgeable tech who's making that assessment and it's the right thing, then fine. Then that's what you do. But they still count. It's this notion of not counting them that leads, it leads to that slippery slope of, I can tell you, because I've witnessed it, been there this uh, live and in person, 
intake desks that require people to sign giving permission to euthanize, even if they aren't requesting euthanasia, so that later the shelter can say that that was what the adopter wanted. Now, I certainly hope those are few and far between, but in my career, I've seen more than one who that was a regular practice for them. And that's why they have to count. Let's say even if it's the right and appropriate outcome, then that is an easily explained position to your community, right? Oh, yes, we had 92% last year and this year we were at 88%, but we had, you know, when you're in a small community, those small numbers, six animals make a big difference. We had six more euthanasias, and so we dropped down to 88%. Well, your average, intelligent, compassionate human being goes, oh, okay. But when you start telling me 66% is your save rate, and ORE is the reason, and you're in a thriving city filled with vet practices, and you have three clinics, public clinics of your own, I'm calling BS on you, period. That's the difference to me, and that's why everybody has to count. The key word here, uh, transparency, uh, what you just said there, counting them honestly and being open to examination is the easiest way, right? I mean, for me, obviously easy for, for me to say this from the comfort of my home office, but, you know, it's just transparency matters. And, you know, sunlight, what's that old saying? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Bingo. And it also makes, it opens the doors for a different solution. But if you're burying it and hiding it from the community, why would you ever seek a different solution? So let's say you are that small rural community for whom this residents feel they've got no other choice. And you're being completely open about that and saying, gosh, you know, we'd really rather not do this, but we need a humane solution for the people in our community and nobody else is offering one. Oh, if you're transparent, maybe somebody steps up to the plate and says, you know what? My practice right on the other side of the line in the next county will be happy to do that for you. We'll be happy to do free consults or some donor might step up to the plate and say, we'd be happy to have a vet come in once or twice a week and do assessments for euthanasia. But if you're hiding all of that, how do you ever solve it? How do you ever change it? How do you ever get to a better place? You're just giving yourself permission to do the same thing over and over again because you're you're hiding things behind closed doors. And if you're hiding one thing behind closed doors, then the community is going to start wondering what else you're hiding behind those closed doors. The other importance about transparency to me is a real simple one, John. If we're all counting dogs and cats the same way, then we're all counting dogs and cats the same way, right? And if what you're doing is legitimate, then you're being compared legitimately to others who are doing the same thing. I can't think of a single argument, not a single one, for removing those animals from your data and your reporting, not a single legitimate one. The only one I've, the main one I hear is, oh, but our community doesn't understand. Then help them, talk to them. It's a point of engagement. It's an opportunity, not something to hide from. It's an opportunity to have a conversation. We didn't always have that here. It wasn't always available here. It wasn't always available at other communities I've worked in. It became available because there was a commitment to it. But if you excuse it and you justify it and you want to hide it and you don't want anybody to ever question you about it, it's never, ever going to change. The other thing I'll say, I'll flip it, is if the ultimate decision about the disposition of that dog or cat is the shelters, then it is not an ORE. And I know there's lots of people who will argue with me about that. But if you can make the decision to pull him off the euthanasia list because you don't think he needs to be euthanized, well, that doesn't count. So why doesn't the reverse count? 
if you made the decision, you made the decision. If you accepted custody of that animal, then the decision about whether they live or die, get adopted or don't get a chance at adoption is the shelters, period. If somebody came to you or any of, most any of those other shelters with a perfectly healthy, bouncy, three-year-old golden and a two-year-old healthy cat and said, I want them euthanized. I'm tired of them. I can't handle them. I can't housebreak them. I can't do this. You wouldn't euthanize those animals simply because somebody asked you to, would you? So that's the other kind of defining point for me. If you are the decision maker, then you have to own that decision. Either you were able to save their life or you weren't. And if you weren't, and it's as legitimate as it can be, then why would you not count that? I, that's what I don't understand. Why? What's the justification for not counting them? And I've heard that, well, no fair, those who don't provide the service. So you should get grace because I was creative enough and resourceful enough to find another solution. So I'm held to a higher standard because I did that. Where's the equity in that? The only way to eliminate all those arguments is everybody counts, period. They all count. We need to know what happened to every single dog or cat that enters any shelter in this country. And if we're doing our jobs, there should be not an ounce of fear about sharing that information with our community and with others. Not an ounce of fear. So the difficulty here, the, the controversy around it rests around um, accusations of, I don't know, malfeasance, I guess. Maybe that's not the right word, but certainly accusations or uh, insinuations that it's manipulating the system to try to look better on the bottom line of the save rate bottom line. So I was talking to a colleague this week. Uh, I've been trying to wrap my head around this whole thing. And I said, give me a reason. Give me a reason why this would happen in this way. And the only answer I've gotten is that it really is just about public perception. So back to transparency, I feel like you're just working against yourself to do that because this is a community problem. You need the community to solve it. So to essentially hide animals that can be saved, that should be saved, and you need help to save, it's so counterintuitive. It like it makes my head hurt. What do you think is holding organizations back? I think that there are some who may legitimately, and I can tell you in our state, it's the case, that there was a period of time that some well-intended unnamed advocates kind of weaponized no-kill and it became very ugly and it became a very nasty, instead of, oh, you're at 77%, what can we do to help put some of these other programs in? And are you looking to increase your life saving? They weaponized it to a point that I think it pushed some people underground and it scared them. It was ugly. And it wasn't, it didn't start with their own community. It started from outside the community. Um, at least I'm speaking of what we experienced, a lot of communities in Florida experienced. And I think that weaponizing of no kill was the start of that. Now, these things were happening before, that happened, of course. But when it became, when our communities became more aware of no kill and there was this 90% threshold and now there's this other level of accountability, there were definitely people scrambling to say, well, uh, how am I going to skate by this? And rather than scrambling to look at model programs and rather than scrambling to find alternatives and solutions and means to improve or using those to me, the big loss, John, is all of those are points of potential engagement from your community. And when you're lying to your community, you can't engage them versus if you're truthful with them about what's happening. And part of this is my PR background. The number one rule of PR, you deliver the bad news first. 
don't let somebody else do it for you. Otherwise, you're going to be in that defensive position all the time. And so when they're running, trying to run and hide from it and somebody else uncovers it, then yeah, holy cow, you're in a defensive position. If instead, I'll give you an example, four, it was four or five years ago when crunching numbers and everything, it was apparent to us the uh, group of animals most at risk in our community were underage kittens. And we made a decision we were going to commit to saving their lives, that whatever it took, we we're going to bring all the resources to the table and we were going to tackle this last population of animals that weren't getting out in high numbers or percentages alive out of our shelter system. When we did, I prepared our staff, our board, and our community. And I said, this is a very fragile population, and we're going to put everything we can towards saving their lives. But we know their mortality rate is high, and it is going to pull our save rate down. Before it ever happened, we set a reasonable expectation. But we're going to save 3,000 kittens who otherwise would have never made it into the shelter or would have died once they were here. But by making that commitment, we know it's probably going to pull our save rate down. And that's okay because it's the right thing to do. To try to save those kittens is the right thing to do. And sure enough, that first year, it pulled our save rate down and we learned all kinds of things. And now our underage kitten save rate is above 90%. But that took us being willing to not get it 100% right. It took us being willing to be honest with our community about what that meant. And so that's the missed opportunity by failing to be completely transparent. Um, the other thing I'll say is, uh, excuse me, but our communities are getting pretty smart about animal welfare these days. They're savvy, they're asking good questions, they're stepping up to the plate to ask to help. You know, wake up those of you with a 66% rate that you're trying to pull off that, that other percentage is OREs, your community is not gonna buy that anymore. They're not gonna buy it anymore. So instead of fudging, Again, what's the harm in being transparent? Um, hiding it from them opens you to the criticism and advocates coming out of the woodwork. I, I used the analogy earlier of inside baseball. And, you know, lest anyone think that it is that and we're talking about some outliers that fall into the category, it is true that a smaller number of organizations are responsible for a huge amount of this. But if we look at the data set, 625,000 animals killed nationally last year. So of that, given what we know of the averages and where some of the organizations are percentage-wise of ORES, we're looking at more than 50,000 animals that are falling into this area of, you know, not sure about that. Not sure that all of the animals of this, say, 50,000 are true cases of euthanasia that should be in that column and just looking at dogs, 12% of all dogs killed last year fall into a very, very questionable area. And John, if we weren't counting OREs, we wouldn't know that it's a real issue and a real corner that we've got to find an answer for. That's my bottom line. If we weren't counting them, we wouldn't know that. You wouldn't have been able to give me that startling fact. And we wouldn't be aware of, gosh, there's a problem here and we need to figure out the fix for it. That's the importance of being transparent. That's why they need to count. We need to understand who are those dogs and why did they die? And where did they die? Was it all rural communities? I'd bet you lunch. It wasn't. i bet you lunch on that one. Um, so we need to take those that same data and dig deeper and understand who were those dogs that lost their life at, under the guise of ORE. And of that, what feels like, oh, it's communities who really didn't have a choice and were providing a service versus, oh, it was in large communities for whom there are vets on every corner. And oh, by the way, the shelter runs a clinic too. 
that's the importance of collecting that data. You wouldn't be able to say, gosh, here's these dogs that have lost their lives. Um, and that's just the dog population. I promise you there's more cats in there. How many cats have we declared feral and euthanized because they were freaked out in a shelter? It's scary to me to even think about it. But we would call that ORE, you know, so to speak. Um, so I think it's important to collect that data. You don't fix the problem if you don't know the problem's there. You don't fix the problem by hiding it. You don't get more resources to address the problem by saying they don't count. They're dogs and cats. They were alive when they crossed your threshold. They count. Denise, always appreciate your perspective uh, and, and chatting with you. I enjoy chatting with you. It's always fun and interesting. Did we miss anything on this? No, I think the bottom line for me is I respect each community and each organization sets their own policies, their own programs, and how they allocate their resources. And I absolutely respect that. And I'm not here to say you should never provide ORE under any circumstance. I'm not an advocate in that direction at all. But I am an advocate that in order to have a clear picture of what's going on in this country with dogs and cats, whether on a community level, a state level, or a community-wide level, we all have to count the same thing the same way period. Denise Deisler is the CEO of the Jacksonville Humane Society, really hoping she and her staff are staying as safe as they can and able to stay healthy. And I wish the same for all of you. This is a very complex issue, and it's not saying that every animal in a certain area by a certain organization is not a case of true euthanasia. For example, a community that is performing well with a high save rate and has lowered their intake it is feasible that if they are providing this service, that the percentage of OREs would be higher. But that's why we need to go deeper on this, to figure out what's happening and how we can do better so we can save more lives. How do you feel about OREs and their place in the data? Should they be included? Should they be excluded? Send us an email, podcast at bestfriends.org. We'd love to hear from you. I know this is a prickly topic, but it's one we cannot ignore, and we need all the voices at the table that we can get. Podcast at bestfriends.org. The producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta, please, please take care of yourself. My wife said it best the other day. All of the time, starting in March and April, up until right now, that was just your training for what comes next. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.